Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn how to have a healthier mind in a digital world. My first guests are educator Rachel Katz and Dr. Helen Shway Hadani. In the house today, we have Dr. Helen Shway Hadani, who is currently a fellow at the Brookings Institution, where she conducts policy-focused research on the benefits of playful learning in both formal and informal contexts. Prior to joining Brookings, she served as the Director of Research at the Bay Area Discovery Museum. Also, we have in the house educator Rachel Katz, who teaches social and emotional learning skills to parents and children. Previously, Rachel was head of the Discovery School at the Bay Area Discovery Museum, head of social and emotional learning for early years at Dulwich College, Beijing, and an elementary classroom teacher. She has written and created television for Nick Jr. and Radio Television Hong Kong and consulted for educational programs at the Children's Television Workshops. Ladies, thanks for joining me on the show today. I am actually really excited about this conversation. Thanks so much for having us, Lisa. Oh, it is a pleasure. I mean, as the parent of young adults, I see the fruits of my labor, good, bad, or indifferent. But I, I also recognize that in order to have an emotionally intelligent child, it's incumbent upon us as parents and mentors and teachers and colleagues to walk that emotionally intelligent walk. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Let's talk a little bit about a child's developing mind because before we got started, you both were talking about the importance of reviewing sort of the developmental steps of a child and reminding ourselves going back to basics of what happens as kids mature and as we become older and they become parents, understanding a little bit more about that cycle. I think maybe I'll start quickly in that and then have Rachel chime in. When we think about emotional intelligence and, and being socially aware, we really need to, let's say, think about our thinking, sort of have this meta process of, of really thinking about our thinking and taking the perspective of others. So it's about diversity of thought and coming to understand, you know, how do we think about our own mental world, like what goes on inside our head, our thoughts, our beliefs, our intentions and also that of others. And so for children, especially for young children, this is something that happens over many, many years, you know, starting as early as infancy, but really having them, when do they come to understand, you know, that they themselves have inner thoughts and beliefs and desires 
and that the person sitting next to them, maybe their friend next to them, has different beliefs and thoughts and desires. And what age does that happen? I think I know, but I want to know developmentally how how that works, the trajectory of thinking about thinking and, and some uh, dominion over thought. Sure, I can start and, and definitely chime in, Rachel. But, Absolutely. Um, you know, even babies, like, you know, you may assume that babies are not talking yet, right? But they are really, really socially aware and they are craving the social connection with people. You get that because you smile at them, they smile back, right? So it's this, you know, cause and effect, right? Something that you do, they respond to it. Then when you get into the toddler years, toddlers are starting to really understand something about people's desires and that people have different desires. They may like something, but someone else likes something else. It's really in the preschool years that a lot of these developments are happening in an area that we call theory of mind, which is really understanding your own mental states and those of others. Preschoolers can start to understand this really interesting thing about our beliefs, right? And that our beliefs drive our actions. So a simple example is if I think my ball is in the garage, I'm going to go look for it in the garage. If my brother thinks that it's in the house, he's going to look in the house. So these are just simple things that we may sort of take for granted, but it actually shows that pretty young children, again, around starting in the preschool years, are starting to understand this really important link between beliefs and actions. This is fascinating because I think it also ties into, you know, coming to know oneself, right? That, that you can see yourself as different or believing in a, in a separate way from your playmates. Well, I think it's important to remember that a child, when they're um, thinking about false belief, it's not as sophisticated as we would think about it. So I, for example, a child might see that, oh, my brother went to the garage to look for the ball. I went to my bedroom to look for the ball. But they're not necessarily thinking in a very sophisticated way of, oh, I'll trick my brother. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like oh, my brother has, this, uh, you know, oh, I mean, that kind of ability to fool someone happens a little bit later, sort of in between those preschool and school age years. So while you're developing this understanding of, oh, I have a mind, I think it's a little bit separate from the way someone else thinks. It's not that sophisticated yet. And when it becomes a little bit more sophisticated in the school age years, where around seven and eight, the ball kind of drops and a, a child is aware that they have a stream of consciousness. They are aware that they're thinking all the time and that they can then hold back what they're thinking and feeling. So it is a long I think, you know, it's a long road of development. And there's something very pure about those toddler years, right? Where there are no filters, right? There's no judgment that the other person is wrong or bad. Absolutely. It's just, you know, those years are just so wonderful. You sort of smile and you think, oh, my child says the most amazing, fun things. But then again, it's important to remember with social and emotional development that 
our child is always looking to the caregivers around them for their opinions and beliefs and to sort of watch the reactions of others to help them to understand how to react. Sort of social referencing, you know, I'm not sure about, a child is not necessarily sure about something, so they're gonna, you know, carefully watch you. And that's really important to remember that we're be, we're kind of being watched all the time. And this is where the good modeling comes in. Absolutely. It's not like, you know, do as I do as I say, it's do as I do, or at least ideally. I mean, and look, you know, nobody's perfect. It's really important to remember that. And you're just going to try your best. Parenting is hard. You're carrying your own burdens and your own beliefs and a job and many things that you have to do. And then you're also caring for your child and caring for the, the well-being of someone younger and who needs who needs your love and care and attention to develop. So it's important not to be too hard on yourself, but it is important to know that your child is watching you. When you wrote The Emotionally Intelligent Child, Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids, you write about peeking inside our children's developing mind. And I would like for you to give a little bit of a deeper glimpse into that. Sure, I, I can talk a little bit about that to start, and then Rachel definitely chime in. But it, it, again, I think I just refer to it. This is an area of research that we call theory of mind in the academic world. And I think one thing that really motivated Rachel and I to, to write this book is that in developmental psychology and in academia, it's a very well-known area of research, but it sort of stays in that world. And so a lot of this research, again, is talking about how children are developing these skills to take the viewpoint, you know, perspective taking skills and really understanding that others, how our beliefs and our desires and our intentions drive our actions and what we do. And that's really a critical piece of being uh, you know, emotionally intelligent because it helps us understand other people, helps us work with others, collaborate with others. And so that's the critical sort of piece of research. We also talk about language development and executive function in the book. But I think it's really that, you know, theory of mind that we talk about in chapter one, that we really wanted to get that information, have that be accessible. Also because, you know, we realize parents, early childhood educators, teachers, very busy people, right? They're gonna, they're not about to go out and you know read some academic journal articles. So we wanted to break down these concepts, make them really accessible and relevant to the challenges that parents face with their children, and similarly some of the challenges that teachers face in a classroom with children. Will you talk about the viewpoint of another person? I mean, which is really compassion, empathy, generosity of spirit you know, being non-judgmental, being able to embrace the fact that we might be different than the other person. I would love for Rachel to touch upon this from her area of expertise and lived experience, because you lived in China for several decades and taught there. And this seems particularly relevant to your experience. Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's important. One of the things that I when I work with children and parents, but in particular children, I sort of ask them about their emotional approach 
So it's just this understanding that you as a person, how do you emotionally and socially approach others? And I started to think a lot about this living in overseas in a community that was not my own, um, speaking a language that was not my mother tongue, and also interacting in international communities. And so one of the things that we focused with the kids on was to really think about when they enter a space to just pay attention and observe a few things. And what we sort of discussed was enter space and look around and ask yourself, what are the people around me doing? So you just sort of pause and look and observe what's happening here. And then you sort of, one of the other things that we talked with the kids about is how do you act when things don't go your way? So again, you're pausing, you're observing, you're looking, you're thinking about how you're responding to a situation when it doesn't go well for you and how others respond to a situation when it doesn't go well for them. And again, that's also quite cultural. You know, some people will show their emotions and some people hold back their emotions. And then we talked again, this notion of emotional approach, we would say, okay, so when you're in a situation, your body is also sending you messages. There might be some physical sensations that you're having. What are those sensations? Where do you feel it? You know, when you're communicating with a friend and you don't like what they're saying and you're feeling some type of tension in your body, like a contraction, where is it? Is it in your stomach? Is it in your throat? So again, we're sort of helping kids to understand that everybody has a different emotional approach to things. One of the other really important things that I learned, especially living in all these different international communities and also in Asia, was that body language and the messages that you send without using words are really important. So again, back to that pausing and observing and thinking about what people are doing. And then the final thing that we also talk about when we think about our emotional approaches to things and how it differs from people and cultures and age is what's your mood, you know, and, and paying attention to your mood in the moment and as it changes over time and from different experiences. We are going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, I would love to continue this conversation from a different perspective, shifting a little bit to the learning process of these pro-social behaviors, impulse control. You mentioned perspective taking, but I also want to add in there the executive function skills, which Helen mentioned, but coming back to that and how it is predictive of future success. So, Hang tight. We are going to send our listeners over to the brookings.edu website, and you can find out more about Helen Shwe Hadani there. So that's www.brookings.edu slash experts. Helen Shwe Hadani on Twitter at Helen S. Hadani. And then on LinkedIn, you can find Rachel Katz at Rachel, and that's R-A-C-H-A-E-L hyphen Katz. We're talking about the emotionally intelligent child effective strategies for parenting self-aware, cooperative, and well-balanced kids. We'll be right back. 
To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. We're back continuing the conversation about healthy minds in a digital world. Let's get back to the conversation with educator Rachel Katz and Dr. Helen Shway Hadani. I want to talk with you about um, learning pro social behavior and impulse control because I think when I look at young adults and adults that I work with, oftentimes I will see that where there's lack in that area. And I think, oof, if only, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Like even at whatever age we are in our adult years to always feel like we are, can behave a hundred percent properly, always be on point, always control our impulses, you know, and have self mastery. It's a tall order, but it's a practice. It's a practice. And we should definitely not Um, expect ourselves to be perfect. That's just way too much pressure or our kids to be perfect. Yeah. So is part of this strategy to when we support our children's development, is it modeling these behaviors, having compassion and forgiveness and understanding when they're not perfect and then returning to the practice? Is, Is that what we're talking about? Oh, absolutely. And it's not only when our children aren't perfect, but it's when we're not the perfect parent because there really is no perfect parent or no perfect child. It's true. It's it's, right. It's true. I've had my my share of shameful moments. I'm sure you have too. Oh my goodness. I mean, I think we wrote this book because we wanted people to know, even when you study child development, you have shameful moments. (laughs) And that's a good thing. I actually think it's humanizing. Absolutely. I mean, those shameful moments really are 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 our teachers. Yeah. I mean, to to add another quick perspective, and and sort of on the good news side, in terms of prosocial behavior, the good news is that we we are born to to be giving, to be compassionate, and even very young children. You witness, you know, very young children, if they see a friend cry, they will all or upset, they will run over to them and try and comfort them, bring them, you know, yes. a favorite toy or a blanket. And so it's something that is instinctual. But at the same time, we do know from developmental research that those pro-social behaviors can be enhanced and developed, yes, with modeling when they see other people respond with kindness and compassion. And so there's sort of both sides of the coin that it, it comes, that's part of, you know, us as humans, which is great news, right? Like children tend to do these behaviors very early on, but that they can also be very much promoted and developed, you know, with the help of caregivers and adults. I want to ask about language development, the impact of the pandemic on children's language. Also in terms of, is there a correlation between these um, social behaviors and development of executive functions that then uh, support that learning and future success? So I can talk a little bit about the executive function and and correlation to future success. Um, and then maybe Rachel can come in and, and talk more about, you know, some of the some of the skills, teaching 
uh, kids' skills to plan and reflect. It's, it's something we talk about in the book, and that's how to develop children's executive function skills. So, um, you know, executive function skills are, you know, they really allow us to monitor and control our behaviors and make informed, hopefully smart decisions in, in most situations, right? So they're sort of like this, the air traffic control of, of our brain. And we sometimes refer to them as the learning to learn skills, right? So when kids, I'll just take a classroom situation for now and then sort of bridge over to social emotional learning. But, you know, in an academic environment, children, you know, you can't teach them any content, whether it's mathematics or or literacy, if they can't, you know, focus their attention, if they don't have self-control, if they don't have, you know, memory skills, right? So those are the foundational skills, these executive function skills that children need to develop. And we know that kids are not born with these skills. They do need to be nurtured in different environments. And a lot of research has shown that executive function is a very powerful predictor over IQ, actually, of children's success in school and beyond. So when children have very strong executive function skills early on in life, that tends to correlate with you know, graduating from high school and getting a good job and just, you know, being in a good life situation. So it's a very interesting relationship there for executive function skills. And what about the helicopter style parent who wants to constantly manage and become the thought police and air traffic controller, you know, for a child's life, never allowing them to develop that executive functioning on their own? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. It's really, really important to allow your child to think for themselves. If someone else is telling them how to think, when they get in a situation where they have to solve a problem for themselves, they don't really know how to do it. And so one of the things that we suggest always is instead of telling, ask. So you're basically shifting from talking at your child to inquiring about what is going on with your child, inside of your child, what is their thinking, what was their idea. Um, and one of the things that we absolutely say is it's it's really helpful to sort of help your child to think with your child, to ask them what they're anticipating is going to happen, how they imagine something to, an experience is going to f- unfold. And then afterwards, go back and reflect with your child and ask, well, what did you think of that? And what might you do differently? And how, you know, were your actions impactful? So again, that's completely different from telling your child what to do. And when you're asking, you're really giving them the chance to think about their thinking and to think about their experiences, which ultimately will have the benefit in their executive function. Talk a little bit about language development, especially in light of the pandemic and some of these kids who have been, not some, the world's children have been locked up for a couple of years. Well, you know, when we think about language and language development, it is one of these really fascinating first areas of research where you know, children learn language very easily 
Um, and we're still trying to figure out like why, how that is. But in relation to social and emotional development, you know, languages are the bridge between us and other people and how we communicate with others. So it's obviously a very critical piece of social and emotional intelligence. And I think as Rachel mentioned previously, you know, children are learning about language way before they can talk. Right. They before they can understand spoken words, they are watching our movements, how we're reacting to others. They're listening to our tone of voice and, you know, really making sense of the world through the actions that they see. And so it, and, and then when you think about when children do start talking and learning words, the more words a child knows, the easier it is to express themselves. Right. So language development is yeah. incredibly important for those early years when you know, and you can see this when young children get very frustrated because they can't, they don't have the words yet, right, to express themselves. And then that just, you know, makes everybody frustrated. But, um, you know, we we say in the book, like some some ways to really, you know, help promote and develop children's, you know, language skills around social and emotional um, learning is really talking with your child about feelings in different settings. So you go to the park with your child. And, you know, maybe a pretty common occurrence is you see another child that's upset, right? Maybe their ice cream cone fell over or they fell off the swing. But you ask them, you know, how do you think that child's feeling? And why do you think he's feeling sad or angry or fearful? And so you just try and take these moments to really talk about emotions and feelings in everyday scenarios so that um, you can really discuss not only what the emotion is, but how you identified that emotion, right? Like, it looks like you're mad because your face is scrunched up and you're shaking your fist and your shoulders are tight. You know, so helping children make that really important connection between what someone is feeling inside and what they're showing outside. Which is a bit of perception checking, right? Like that we're making sure that what what we're reading is an accurate summary of what they're feeling. And sometimes, yeah. and sometimes it might not be. Yep, exactly. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a really good point too. And, and that's something to, you know, older children understand that they can hide their feelings from others. And so, and that others can hide their feelings from them. So that's also something to, to really be explicit about explaining to your child to talk about that you know, um, and to always keep those uh, doors of communication open so that they feel that your child feels like they can talk with you and that and that they can talk about how they're feeling about their friendships and their social relationships. In your recent book, The Emotionally Intelligent Child, Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids, you share the mind framework to help parents respond to their child's actions with less reactivity and more patience. Can you talk about this framework and how, and how to help us practice this? Um, I, I can speak to that. Um, so this mind framework, basically Helen and I developed a framework that parents can use, that children can use, and that parents and children can use together. And that was really important to us. So we called it the mind framework because we wanted to keep it really simple. And it was about understanding what is going on in your mind. And so when we talk about the mind, it's just this 
you know, transfer of information and energy from within you and then also between you. So that sort of social and emotional connection. And the M stands for mindfulness and just sort of the ability to observe what's going on without reacting. Uh, the I stands for inquiry. So again, what we talked about before of asking instead of telling, really asking yourselves questions and asking your child questions about what's going on and why you're responding this way and why your child might be responding in this way. The N is for non-judgment, um, just how to really approach your own feelings and your child's actions non-judgmentally. And we look at if you're falling into blame, shame, or criticism, you know, noticing that and then sort of taking some time to move away from those feelings and those, those, the way that you're reacting to someone with blame, shame, or criticism. Um, and then the D is for decide. And we really talk about how to choose the right time to respond to your child and to an action that they've had, whether you respond in that moment, whether you help them to, to anticipate something that's going to happen. So you can sort of, you can be very timely with help your child to understand the right timing of a response. And then of course, um, the last part of, of um, the D in the timeliness is just if you're really feeling like you don't necessarily know how to respond to your child or you want to talk to your child about something, but you feel like it's not the right time to just make sh to just wait. You know, often we respond to our kids immediately. We feel like we have to to interact right in that moment. And a lot of times, you know, you can wait two, three, four days and then go back to something and let your child know, hey, you know, when I did X. I want you to know why I did that. And and I'd like to talk with you too about why you've done something. That's a really good point because we tend to want to button up our business with our kids and our even our spouses and our, our coworkers. Um, and it's not always to our benefit. That pause is very, very useful. Absolutely, absolutely. And so the mind framework is, it's really... In the book, we sort of explain how to use it yourself as a parent and then how to teach each aspect of, you know, the mindfulness, the inquiry, the non-judgment and the deciding how to how to teach each part of those to your child. And then once your child understands it, then you can sort of use the whole framework together. Well, I think it's the secret sauce for a happier life, regardless for parent, child, anybody. If you take this mind process, this framework with you into your life and your lived experiences, I think things will get easier. Oh, well, that's our hope. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that, right. That's the goal, I would think. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's a great point in terms of, you know, like Rachel mentioned, we wrote this so that, you know, parents could learn and understand it. You know, hopefully after, you know, reading part one of the book in which we talk about, you know, the research that it's sort of, that's the foundation of it. But then we really wanted to put that research into action. And how could we give some, you know, practical tips and create this framework so that parents can understand it for interacting with their child, but then also have their child understand it so they can use it together. But I think, you know, Lisa, you made a great point in terms of this is something that it's just key for 
any anybody interacting with other people and how to be you know responsive and compassionate and you know promote empathy in, in any relationship. The Emotionally Intelligent Child Effective Strategies for Parenting Self-Aware, Cooperative, and Well-Balanced Kids. I feel like we've just kind of touched on the tip of the iceberg, but there's so much good information in this book that I think anybody who is raising young kids, older kids, teenagers, raising their parents, in the case of my young adults, you know, I always tell them it is really hard to raise parents. I'm so sorry. And they laugh. (laughs) Please go to check out Helen. I'm going to give you both contacts for Helen and Rachel. You can find Helen at www.brookings.edu slash experts slash Helen Shwe Hadani on Twitter at Helen S. Hadani. And you can find Rachel on LinkedIn at Rachel hyphen cats. And Rachel is spelled a little bit uniquely. It's R-A-C-H-A-E-L. Ladies, thank you for writing this book. Thank you for sharing part of your day with me and our audience and really helping us with tools that I think we can all use in our lives, whether we have kids or not. Thank you so much for having us, Lisa. Oh, it was a pleasure. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. Let's continue the conversation about healthy minds in a digital world. My next guest is Amy Adams. Amy Adams is the co-founder of the nonprofit Healthy Screen Habits, which is dedicated to educating and empowering families to develop healthy habits with technology use. Amy is a credentialed school social worker and has worked with children of all ages in schools. She currently works at a high school providing counseling services to special education students. Amy also serves as a trustee on her local board of education. Amy has a master's in social work from UCLA and lives in the Los Angeles area with her family. Amy, we need to talk. (laughs) Well, good morning. Good morning to you. We need to talk because... This is something, this is really a thing. And I notice it uh, in people of all ages. I live in a multi-generational household and I notice that our 97-year-old aunt, she gets sucked into the clickbait and we can't pry her away. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, it affects everyone, not just, you know, a lot of people kind of blame it on the young and say, oh, it's just a young person's problem, but it's really, it really affects all of us. And that's the design of it. That's on purpose. That is on purpose. That that brain hack that people who develop these things know full well what that's about. Yeah. And in fact, that's oftentimes we feel really bad about it. And we feel like it's a matter of, oh, we don't have enough willpower or what's wrong with me. And I think what's really important that I really try to help the people that I work with understand is that it's not our fault that that technology, you know, is like this. It's it's designed, you know, on purpose to suck us in and pull us in and to keep us there. And there's lots of tricks that they use. And when we kind of understand that, that helps us combat it a little bit better, knowing that it's not just, you know, oh, it's just because I'm, you know, a weak person or it's just because I don't have any willpower. 
when we really understand what's really going on. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening in our brains that makes us go to these devices so often and get stuck there. Because there's some neurological responses to the stimulation of those screens. Yeah, most definitely. Well, one of the one of the biggest things is kind of understanding how they they hook us in, and basically anything that's you know pleasurable for us is going to be something that we seek after. So you know they've made it very very extremely pleasurable by introducing you know lots of different rewards, and the best way to get you hooked is by you know doing something called a variable reward system, intermittent rewards, which is what they do in the casinos in Las Vegas. The, the reason why they've been such a successful industry is the casinos have figured out that if they, you know, if they give their rewards, they, you know, let people hit the jackpot once, you know, every randomly, you know, instead of, you know, once every 10 times, people will get sucked in because they never know when the next, you know, reward is going to come. And that's exactly, you know, how it is with our phone. We don't know, you know, when it's going to be a good, good thing that's, that's on our phone. Sometimes it's just a library alert telling us, you know, you got an overdue book, but sometimes it's a friend reaching out or sometimes it's someone that's liked our post and because of that we get really easily sucked in it's just um it's just how our brain chemistry works um another thing another reason that we get sucked in so much is because you know in our day we have these things called stopping cues and that's just a natural part of our days and what that is is when you know we can all relate with is you know the setting of the sun for for thousands of years everybody knew the day was over and that you went home and you stopped working when the sun set right? That's a pretty easy stopping cue. Um, and so it helps you transition <laughs> to a new activity. But how the tech companies have, you know, worked our brains with this one is that they make it so that when you're on a phone, there are literally no stopping cues. That's why we have the endless scroll, as we all know, right? The 24-hour news network, those have zero stopping cues. So when we think, oh, I, I just meant to look at my phone for 10 minutes, and then three hours later, I'm still on my phone, that's on purpose because nothing told us, oh, it's time to stop. It's time to get off. Um, and of course, like I've already mentioned, that is on purpose to kind of, you know, get us sucked into this vortex. So it's helpful to understand how these, how these little things work so that we can kind of um, make hacks about that, which is why I really, you know, talk to people about every time you pick up your phone, you should be asking yourself two questions. What is my purpose? And how long is this going to take? Because when we reach out with our phones or our devices with intentionality, that's when we can really, you know, know, okay, I'm doing this for this this particular reason. I'm not going to get sucked in by the ad or by the other alert on my phone. Um, I also encourage people to turn off their notifications um, except for like their text messages because, and even that, some people like to turn those off as well um, because everything is always like clamoring for your attention. And it's not you who's deciding when to pick up your phone by having notifications. It's them. So the way that social media platforms run their operations is that they're really hoping that you have their notifications on because you might be done for the day of looking at social media and decide, okay, I looked at my social media. I'm good. But if you get a little notification telling you, oh, so-and-so liked your post or you have five new comments, what does that do? That pulls you back onto their site and research has so shown that even when we get sucked back in by just a simple notification, we're bound to spend about 15 or 20 extra minutes on their site. So it's a win for them and it's a loss for our time management. So just understanding that 
is really helpful for us in kind of <laughs> defeating that hydra monster of, of you know, getting getting our time sucked into things that maybe we don't want to be doing with our time. Let me just interject here because I want to just recap something that you said to make sure that I've got the point down that what I heard you saying is that we need to really look at our mobile devices as tools, you know, that rather than them being a relative, (laughs) yes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, that, that we have to need to look at them for the machines that they are, for the things that they can do and not treat it as part of the family or an animate object. It is an inanimate object that we are in charge of, not the other way around. That's what I heard you saying. Yeah, no, that's and, and another question I ask a lot relating to that is what is your relationship with your phone? I mean, if you really were to ask yourself that question, what is my relationship with my, is it my boyfriend? Is it my best friend? Because sometimes we treat our phones as if they are our spouse. You know, we let them interrupt us at all times. We carry them with us. And we can't ever be apart from them. It, it feels like we're treating it more like a person than an actual tool. And something that I really love um, from The Social Dilemma, which was a great movie, um, kind of a documentary that Tristan Harris, you know, was a big part of that. He talks about how, you know, a phone should really be a tool, but a tool doesn't demand something of you. So a tool doesn't, like a bike, doesn't demand that you <laughs> ride. Right. It's not reaching out to you saying, come on, let, let me, you know, ride me right now. A bike is there as a tool when you need it. It helps you get to work or to a friend's house or go on an exercise, whatever, but it's not, it's not calling you. So if really our phone is a tool, then we need to not let it call us, not let it demand anything of us, because otherwise we're kind of giving away our autonomy to this third yes. party, to this other little device. And that's really, that's really the heart of it, I think, is that we, we're, letting, we're letting our autonomy go and we're kind of gladly giving it away because we think it's benefiting us. But we, what we don't realize in the long term, we're actually serving it instead of it serving us. Yes, yes, yes. Um, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes. But before we do, I want to sort of touch on the family tech plan and the importance of how we connect with our children and the people that live in our household, the importance of those good, strong bonds and those social connections. Okay, so the very most basic thing I always tell everyone, which people always say, like, think, well, this doesn't have anything to do with tech, but in my mind, it has everything to do with tech, is always put the relationship first. The relationship is your most fundamental and vital tool in helping you with anything, but especially in this arena. Um, And so always be seeking to put money in that relationship bank um, by doing things that are just you know, for fun with your kids. I have three teenagers, so I, you know, and oh one gosh, tween. bless you. <laughs> so I, I live this life currently. You know, I understand that with teenagers, a lot of it is, you know, I, there's a lot of eye rolling and a lot of like, oh, I don't want to hang out with you. But in reality, they, they do. You know, even no matter what they say, there is that sense of they want to be seen. You know, and it, it those three things. It's, it's all kids need to be seen feel safe and be soothed by, by their parents. And so I always try to really keep that fundamental that when all is said and done, when all of the, you know, the filtering and the monitoring and the plans and all this is said and done, what really helps the most with anything is just working on building that solid relationship. Because I know that 
I can't protect my children in any in any arena 24 hours a day, whether it's with tech or with bullies or at school or whatever. I can't. But what I can do is make sure that my relationship is is, you know, solid with them so that when they do have a problem, when there is an issue that they will feel comfortable knowing, oh, mom, you know, mom has made my home a safe place so that we can talk about these hard things. And I also think it's really fundamental for parents. Sometimes we feel like as parents, we have to, you know, always be perfect and we can't let our kids know that we struggle too. And I'm very honest with my kids about things that are hard for me. I'll tell them, you know, last week I told them I made a mistake at work and, you know, this is what happened or whatever so that they don't feel so dumb because we all make mistakes. And I think sometimes, especially with tech, our kids are really embarrassed when they make maybe a big mistake. Maybe they send out an inappropriate picture or they look at something they shouldn't. And if they don't know that it's okay to make mistakes, if we haven't made sure of that in our relationship with them, they're never going to come to us. So that's always first on my list. Let's jump off for a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Amy Adams. We're talking about healthy screen habits, how to manage tech in your lives, in your family's lives. To learn more, please visit healthyscreenhabits.org. And that handle is also on Facebook and Instagram, Healthy Screen Habits. And on Twitter, it's a little bit fun. It's at Healthy Screen Ha, H-A. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Let's get back to the conversation with Amy Adams. We're talking about healthy minds in a digital world. Amy, I'd love for you to explain to our listeners why teenage brains are so drawn, like a magnet, you know, like glue to video games and social media. So one thing that's really important for to understand about teenage brains is that they seek novelty and novelty in the, in the developing brain. Um, and so we've got a brain that's always seeking novelty always looking for something new and exciting, which is why, you know, car insurance is so expensive for teenagers because car insurance (laughs) companies understand that because of this novelty seeking, they're going to get in a lot more crashes or have a lot more tickets. And that's part of, you know, the team just understand it. So understand that that's one of the things that's a, that's a draw is that, is that because of that, and, and because, you know, phones and devices have so many bells and whistles that they're really drawn into that. Another reason is because teenagers really, 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 place a huge importance on social connection. Um, it's never more important than it is during the teenage years. You know, we, we're, we're social creatures, and yet during the teenage years, that's when they're trying to figure out where do I fit in, where do I belong, and, you know, these devices kind of provide them a seemingly instant access to all their friends at once. 
Now, we know that the access isn't as rich as in person, but because it is, a, you know, somewhat of a connective, you know, thing to other people, it's really alluring to them. Another thing is identity. So teenage, you know, the, the main task of adolescence is identity formation. And, you know, phones provide kids with all kinds of information. And, and as they try on different identities, it's, you know, they have all access to all kinds of identities online. And, and that's another reason why they're really, really drawn into um, phones. So that's just a few of the things why kids are, are so drawn into that. I also think about instant gratification, that, that this is something that we as humans, we are pleasure-seeking missiles. We want instant gratification and the phone provides it at, at the ready, you know? Yeah, yep, very much so. And we don't have to, it's, it's the law of the least which is a concept meaning, you know, we want to do the least amount of work for the biggest thing. And that's what, that's what our phones kind of give us. Like, oh, we don't have to really do the work of friendship, you know, the hard work of like the face-to-face, the awkward moments. We can just instantly be on there and DMing our friends on social media. And so it seems to like kind of skip a couple steps. But in the skipping of those steps, we also don't have the richness that they provide. And that's why a lot of times, you know, our kids' mental health suffers because, they have access to all these friends at once, but they're not, they're still lonely. And that's because they're not the richness of the friendships as you would see developing offline. And I'm wondering if chemically they're getting the dopamine there. I should say we, I'm going to take some ownership here. You know, like when I, that yeah. I get the dopamine, but I'm not getting the oxytocin. Right. That's exactly what happens. And, you know, a, a, another big thing that I talk about a lot, which really resonates with parents, especially is this concept of, you know, one of the things with oxytocin is touch. When we touch yes. another human being, we, you know, they, you know, famously these eight second hugs. And, and I always make sure now after learning this several years ago, I made sure that every day I was intentional about touching my children because when they're babies, you touch them all the time. But somehow when you have teenagers, sometimes it can feel a little awkward, but they really need that because that's what you know produces the oxytocin, gets it flowing, is that hug. And we're not getting enough touch. And so as parents, we can lead out with that and make our kids wake up when they go to bed throughout the day that we're making sure that we really give them those hugs because we, we need those. And just to clarify for, for people who might not know, oxytocin is the bonding hormone. It makes us feel connected. It makes us feel safe. It, it soothes us. And dopamine is the, is the pleasure bomb. Yeah. So we're all pleasure, but we're no, you know, we can have tons of pleasure and still not be happy. Yes. That seems to be counterintuitive, but that's the way a lot of our kids are feeling right now. Their, you know, their brains are hundred percent pleasure, but when it, when it really comes down to it, they may have a, you know, a thousand friends online. But if I were to ask them, you know, how many friends do you have in real life? They may not be able to tell me anyone. In fact, this is, this is what I run into a lot. You know, I also work in this field. I, I have teenagers and I work all day with teenagers and I see this over and over again, as, as do my colleagues, is that the, the lot, kind of the loss of real-time social connection um, is what's happening. And I really see that as a big effect. You know, one of the things that's really affecting our, our kids' mental health is that we really, really, because we are social creatures, we really do benefit from those really rich in-person interaction. High connectivity. And it's not that, yes, high connectivity. And it's not that, you know, I, I'm not one to say, oh, poo-poo completely, you know, all social media, because it does provide a modicum of social connectivity. Yes. So it's not that it doesn't give us anything, but it's kind of the difference between having a bag of Doritos for lunch and feeling full but gross, right? <laughs> um, and having a well-balanced lunch where you have a fruit and a, a sandwich and, you know, 
and, and, and a little bit of, of Doritos. And so that, that's kind of what our, our kids are experiencing all the time. They're, they're basically, their diet of, their social diet consists of these really low value social interactions instead of fuller, richer ones. It's like the difference between like white sugar and honey. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> you get yeah. the instant hit from the, from the white sugar and the playing with the phone, but it's the honey that, you know, helps sustain your blood sugar for the longer haul. You know, yeah, because which you know which lasts in your system longer, right? The right. white sugar is so easy and it tastes so good, but you know the problem is our kids are staying up all night on their phone, yes, and then you know they're suffering the next day. Then they, you know, they have impaired abilities to function. They have all these things, and then it's harder for them to interact, you know, in person with with other kids. Let's not talk just about the kids. There are certain adults I know, and I, I'm happy yeah. to say that I learned many years ago to put the phone away and out of the bedroom early on. And I know that you talk about this. I want to talk about a tech plan for the family or your partner, ways that we can help each other to kind of set some boundaries for ourselves. So we put the technology away and we engage with one another and we go into restful sleep and restoration. Okay, so one of our biggest things for our organization is our family tech plan. And we really um, encourage all families, whatever kind of shape or size your family looks like, together as a family. Once again, that relationship is foundational. This isn't something you do to your kids or right. you tell to your kids. This is something that you really sit down and there's, you know, it's very short. It's just a front and a back page and it goes through just different things of like, you know, what are your devices that you even have in your home and what are you worried about? Because every family is a little bit worried about, you know, maybe different things. Maybe in your family, you're really concerned about bullying. So you want, you're going to make your tech plan about, you know, more about those dangers, or maybe you're worried about you know, inappropriate material or too much time online. So, you know, I'm not here to tell you exactly what, you know, you're worried about, but that, you know, we really want each family to cater to them. And then you sit down with your kids and you talk about, you go through and, and there's different, you know, sections where you talk about, you know, where does the phone not go in our house? You know, does the phone stay just downstairs? In our house, you know, we've decided that our phone stays just downstairs. So they never go upstairs in the bedrooms. Um, and we, you know, there's also places where you talk about, you know, at what times and in what situations. So another place is at dinner time. We don't have phones at the dinner table. Yes. And that is a huge game changer. Huge, because huge. Because then we're actually focusing on each other. You know, so many studies have shown the value of eating together as a family. And it really has nothing to do with the food. The food is great, but really the food is kind of the extra bonus. Really the importance is that is a place where your kids are seen, they feel safe and they're soothed. That's an opportunity for everyone to come together and to really connect. Yeah. For those, you know, even if it's 10 minutes and it doesn't have to be good food. It doesn't, I don't care if you're serving, you know, chicken nuggets or ramen. Your gourmet <laughs> it doesn't, it matter. doesn't matter. It doesn't the matter. Point is, the point is not the food. Right? It's the, the gathering. Is, it's the gathering. Yeah, and, you know, they, they did a study out at, um, in Northridge several years ago at, at California State University of Northridge. And it was really telling. I, I was shocked about, you know, how families spend less than, you know, 10 minutes a day or sorry, a week in you know, meaningful conversation with their kids. We, we, we talk to our kids all the time, right? About, chore, you know, chores and homework and stuff. But in terms of just chatting and just connecting with our kids, are we really doing that? So, you know, having those, those boundaries with getting the phone out of, out of places like a family dinner, or maybe there's, you know, certain evenings when you want to have, you know, tech free. And, and, you know, our family tech plan really helps you kind of 
walk through all these steps of where you're going to keep your phones, when's your phone's curfews, and, and what kind of apps do you want your kids to have on your phone. And it lets you do this together. And, we, you know, every year in our family, we change our family tech plans. So we go through and revamp it. Because as your kids get older, there's going to be different rules. And that's, you know, fine. We should always adapt and we should always adjust. But the point is, um, we do it together. And then we post it on our fridge and everyone knows the rules. So we're, you know, not, that really helps kids when they feel like, okay, we're all, we're all, we're all following the same rules and we follow the same rules too. So no tech at the dinner table means no tech for me either. I don't important phone call or whatever. It means no tech. No, and my kids right. are the first to, as they should be. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 we had the same thing when my kids were little as well. And then we would allow the tech at the end of the meal. Like if we were talking about something, and we needed to like get get some information about us a, a part of the conversation. We would allow it at the table because it would enable us to stay around the table more and continue the conversation. So we were using it as a research tool. Yeah, and that's a great that's a great plan, and that that works great, you know. And and however kind of you design it that works for your family, I think it's fabulous. You know, maybe you decide that at the end of the dinner you're going to play Wordle together or whatever it is. Right, know? right. Um, it's because it can be tech can be enhancing. We just don't want it to take over our life. That's the big thing. I love tech. I use tech every day, but I don't want it to control me. I, I want to be in control and I want my children to learn how to be in control. And that's really what my goal is with my children. And use it as a tool, you know, not it use us, which I think is yeah. um, so much of what we're seeing today. And in reality, you know, it was a lifesaver for many people during the pandemic because that was the only way they could connect was through the use yep. of technology. So we're not bashing it. We're just saying we want yeah. to be in charge of it. Yeah. So going back to that tool, you know, analogy of like the bike doesn't call us, the hammer doesn't call out to us. It doesn't control us. We control the hammer. We control the bike. So we control the tool. So let's learn, you know, and let's teach our children by through our example. And, and also, you know, through learning from our mistakes, because that's okay of, you know, that we can learn to control the tool. Healthy Screen Habits. To learn more about Amy Adams, please go to healthyscreenhabits.org on Facebook and Instagram. The handles are Healthy Screen Habits for both. And on Twitter, it's a little bit different at Healthy Screen Ha, H-A. Yes, it really is Healthy Screen Ha. Amy, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. It's been great to talk to you. Oh, me too. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guests, Rachel Katz, Dr. Helen Shway-Hadani, and Amy Adams wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUURadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. <laughs>